Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, host Pamela Ritchie is joined by Dividend Plus Fund Portfolio Manager Don Newman to discuss fluctuating market conditions, the benefits of dividend investing, and the macroeconomic factors influencing his investment decisions. Don says that it's been interesting to watch how bond markets have been pricing interest rates during the past three to six months. Wages remain sticky with many individuals locked into multi-year contracts with limited flexibility and unions continue to reduce inflation-related losses. Turning to Canadian banks, Don explains that while they tend to be profitable, early cycle stocks were currently at the tail end of the cycle with the market pricing them down as things start to slow. He says that dividends remain safe with good capital ratios and valuations. He adds dividend investing continues to be a great way to leverage the power of compounding in your portfolio. And Don cites the example of utilities to illustrate that multiples don't dramatically fluctuate over long periods of time. He says there remains a sizable portion of companies who haven't hit their peaks during the last several years and many who are still suffering from supply chain issues. Despite these setbacks, Don believes that demand is still there. This podcast was recorded on May 30th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement recommendation or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So there have been some fireworks, unquestionably, in equity markets. I think we all kind of have seen that. Is there there anything to the AI story that actually, you know, affects the way you look at things coming from through your lens of dividend investor? Yeah, I think it's it's going to be um, a little bit of time probably until we know exactly how the dividend space gets impacted. But the, I mean, the overall AI narrative is like is is just fascinating for markets from the standpoint of is this sort of internet 2.0? Is there an ability here? The market, I think, for probably a good portion of 20 years, certainly for the past decade, has been looking for something that you know you know potentially increases productivity and. Is this the thing where you actually can get a step change in productivity and the companies that do it right, um, there's going to be winners and losers uh, in this. And that's going to be the job of our analysts to kind of figure out who wins big, who loses big, um, who can implement the fastest. But can you get a step change in productivity here where profit margins, um, you know, even going into a slowdown um, over the next sort of the foreseeable future can actually can actually rise and you take you use the same amount of people or you either use fewer people to do the same work or you use the same amount or more but you just get a, a real step change in productivity and it could have huge implications for um, sort of profitability of companies and who wins and who loses and certainly in the, in the dividend space, that's going to be, it'll take a little time, um, but that's going to be over the next couple of years, one of the major jobs of our analysts to, to figure out 
um, how this technology applies to their companies, and who can implement it and implement it the best, and who wins and who loses. Tell us a bit. I mean, in the meantime, we are still living in higher inflation. I mean, it's it's uh, on the downtick, it seems, but. Lots of bets on maybe the Fed still being in the market to raise rates next month. We really don't know, but we do know that inflation is still here. Ultimately, with a dividend strategy, you're kind of getting paid through that. Just talk a little bit about the offset. I think it's been really interesting, actually, just to watch the bond market and how the bond market's been pricing sort of interest rates in the last four, six months. At the start of the year, basically, the bond market had gone and said, hey, by the end of the year, we're going to have like three interest rate cuts. Uh, and yields will be back down in the low fours. And we've seen over the last you know, sort of month or so that you know, that rate expectation is you know, now just below five uh, and interest rate hikes are sort of back on the table in the next couple of meetings. So I think what the Fed is, is finding that and as our sort of asset allocation team have kind of predicted, um, we do have, you can go very easily from eight down to seven, down to six, you know, sort of five, four. But when you get to sort of four, like wages have been pretty sticky and they are a lot of people have sort of locked in wages in multi-year contracts. It's certainly for unions at this point, trying to sort of claw back losses they've had on inflation. And that becomes stickier. So it becomes like a harder, the easy work is now done. The harder work for the Fed uh, is going to be able, is going to be to get that inflation from a four number down to something with a you know a, a sort of a mid two, a mid two number and down to their ultimate goal of two, um, so they may end up erring a little bit on the um, sort of conservative side just in getting it down and have to sort of raise rates again and for like a dividend mandate. I think that's where you know it kind of comes in and just makes sense, and maybe you didn't need it when the the you know for a good portion of the last decade, uh, when the Fed was having trouble getting uh, you know rates to inflation to two and rates were sort of pinned close to zero. But as an investment advisor, having that just one portion of your portfolio where you can say, hey, listen, I've got you know three or four percent inflation out there, but I've got a four percent yield, and just right off the top, I've maintained or grew grew the purchasing power of my um, my client's money, and on top of that, I actually get growth in earnings. So you get this wonderful combination of sort of income plus growth that I'd say for the good portion of the last decade was sort of was a, sort of a nice to have, but it's not a need to have. I think now it sort of falls into sort of at least for a portion of your portfolio, a kind of need to have for your client. So let's talk about growth more as a style than as a, a concept broadly, but because last week, last year rather, we we certainly saw sort of the rise of the discussion of value growth. I mean, growth has had a pretty good run this year. I mean, we're note the fireworks we started off our conversation with, but it's been very present. Yeah, sure. And this is where it comes back and just sort of being a sort of a prudent investor, the idea of always just having, you know, like all your buckets covered. Because you, from year to year, it's really hard to go and say, okay, it's going to be a growth year, it's going to be a value year, it's going to be a contrarian year. Um, so I always think about there are obviously in years you can tilt and you can get a feel for what you know what's working and what's not. Um, but we've seen this year. Listen, the Nasdaq got really hit hard last year. Um, a lot of companies came out and uh, at the start of the year and said, "Okay, well, we're finally going to give up a little bit and we're going to cut some massive costs." And a lot of the tech companies have laid off 
thousands, you know, it's already ten thousands of people. But that got cheered to the market. The idea of okay, well, we're going to slow down on investing, you know, billions of dollars in like the metaverse or something like that, and actually going to focus on on profitability. That got sort of things started. It's like okay, profits are actually going to be better than people thought, and you know, the stocks are down a lot. And then came sort of the uh, wait AI. Uh, and there are a lot of companies that are going to do an incredible job benefiting from this. So it's been very much a growth-led year, uh, at least at least for now. So um, I'm always a big proponent of just go and find managers you like, um, find the sort of you know find a broad you know portion of buckets. And it's one thing we do really well at Fidelity here. We're not a growth. We're kind of uh, style agnostic. So we have everyone from Mark Schmel who does growth really well to, you know, Hugo that does contrarian really well. I do dividends, you know, Darren's a GARP guy. We've got kind of a whole, Dan does value very well. Uh, we've got all the buckets. It's just, you know, find a manager you like and diversify your buckets out. And over time, if you've got the, if you've got the best in every bucket, you're going to do really well. Are you concerned about the health of the Canadian banks, given that the mortgage holders are highly indebted. So the Canadian picture, but maybe we'll broaden that with you as well to, to the U.S. picture. We'll hit Canada first. So there's obviously some sort of head, sort of headwinds that have come up for the Canadian banks, and I'll, I'll go go through them. What I'd say is just you know sort of big picture. You know what I generally talked about is you know banks in general, not Canadian banks or U.S. banks, but all banks are generally really good early cycle stocks. Um, we're not in the early cycle now, and what I mean by early cycle is, you know, when the economy starts picking up and get and sort of, you know, comes to a trough and starts getting better. We're kind of at the sort of the tail end of um, the cycle now, later cycle. So my bank holdings are probably, if you look at dividend fund, it's probably 14, 15% of the fund. I think a lot of the dividend fund out, funds out there probably have 25, 35% of their fund in banks. I would say, listen, valuation, if you look at long-term on valuation, the Canadian banks tend to trade somewhere between eight and like 12 and a half times earnings. We're kind of like nine right now. So the market has already priced them down to a point. I, if you had told me they were trading at 12 and a half times and there were these headwinds, I'd say, listen, I'm completely staying away. But the market has kind of already priced in that this, the market knows things are going to be slow um, and has kind of priced that in already. And at some point over the next couple of years, we will hit early cycle and that, eight, that nine times earnings will go back to 12 and a half. In the very short term, we've got some you know headwinds. You're going to see provisions for credit losses. Come up a little bit. I mean, we did um, in the earnings even last week, didn't we? Yeah, and and they're and they they're you know they're probably going to work their way up over the next little bit because there will be more people that are will struggle to repay um, some loans as as interest rates have come up. The other big thing is just. There are a couple other th things. Uh, one, you've got expenses. Um, we talk about wages being infl in sticky. So you had to pay people more, and that's kind of now sort of in the in the payrolls there. Um, at the same time, revenue has slowed down a little bit. So you have a, a little bit of a headwind in terms of sort of cost inflation. The other one um, that I've been talking about is just um, deposit mix. So I think people had really gotten tired of going and seeing their savings accounts and getting 1%. On their savings account, so go and you know you bought a GIC and you suddenly got four. At one point, they were yielding five percent, um, but that costs the bank more. You may you might go and said, hey, you know what? I'm going to switch into my Fidelity Money Market Fund and I'm going to get you know four and a half percent or something like that instead of getting that. So the banks either have to. It's what's called deposit beta. You've got to either sort of pay more for your deposits or you have mix shift within your deposits and people move their money to things that are higher yielding and that. Uh, well, interest rates stop going up a little bit, that compresses your NIM a little bit. 
a little bit. The dividends are safe. The capital ratios are really good. Uh, the valuation is actually pretty good. So I'm not worried about the banks. You're just going to have a period where earnings growth isn't going to look quite as good. And we sort of wait for early cycle. And then, you know, at that point, I will probably ramp up my holdings in banks. On the U.S. front, the concerns, I think everyone's pretty well acquainted with what we watched. There is sort of this question of, of what's next. Is that it? What do you look at there? I mean, banks. Yeah, on the banks front, uh, you know, I've generally always stayed away from regional uh, regional banks in the U.S. And I think what we found out, first of all, I'd say, you know, the things that sort of happened in the Silicon Valley Bank thing was, you know, somewhat unique. Like that bank was set up uh, very unlike just about every other. They were banking like a huge portion of the U.S. tech industry. Uh, and that was fantastic. If you're, you know, uh, a startup company, you put you you raised a ton of money, you put in Silicon Valley Bank, and the you know the cycle was really going. There was tons of money coming in from private equity. The problem is when valuations started to compress, uh, you couldn't go and do any more funding rounds because you'd be like you'd be funding at lower levels and hurting the existing shareholders. So you basically funding stopped, and all these companies are burning cash. So the money basically then starts to flow out. And Silicon Valley had, Bank had done a thing where they basically went sort of longer duration out to the sort of the five-year market, like at a time when rates were close to zero, um, had a huge sort of uh, uh, hit to their bond book, um, which generally is not a problem because you just hold to maturity and you never have to take it. The problem is when you've got your bank, all these tech companies that are bleeding cash, and your deposits are flowing out the door at like billions of dollars a month, you have to go in actually to preserve capital. They had to go and sell it at a big loss. At the, at the same time, um, you had some uh, some other uh, sort of issues and some uh, tech, tech banks down the US. Uh, and it just made for a very poor situation and it wasn't handled very well, I think, by the bank, investment bankers, and a whole bunch of things came to fruition at the same time. You also found out with technology um, that deposits can flow or flee very quickly. And that's something that's very different than what you would have seen in, in the past. So uh, it was a unique situation where it was very vulnerable. Uh, I generally have stayed away from small regional banks. But what you then do see is things like the Canadian banks and larger banks in the U.S. are actually the beneficiaries of a huge flow of, uh, of deposits, uh, which they can put to work uh, at sort of uh, at, at, at good rates. Uh, and so basically in banks right now, um, the narrative, and I agree with it, is bigger is better. Uh, and, and on the Canadian front, you know, the deposits are, have been relatively sticky. So I'm not worried about any sort of contagion from what you saw in the small banks in the U.S. to our, our uh, you know, Canadian-based banks. Another area where where money has moved quickly, and, and I mean, there are good reasons for it on the on the rising interest rate front is is, is rates is the property side of things. It yep. seems to be largely the office side of things that is the issue, but. I mean, what did you notice there in terms of having opportunities to take a look at REITs in, you know, a rising interest rate environment, tricky time? The first thing to note is like rising interest rates, and I've talked about this before, like I think if you thought went back to last year, um, myself, probably some of our bond guys would have said, um, listen, you know, rates are probably fairly easily going up to two and a half, three percent. Uh, at the start of the year, it would have been really hard to call that rates are going to go to four or five um, because that was just such a huge leap from zero. Uh, and you got the first sort of hit to REITs was really, oh, geez, 
you know, we're going to go past two and a half, three. We can no longer price in a discount rate in a REIT of three and a half. Even if this is a really good REIT, the fact is they now got to go and raise debt at like five and a half percent or something like that. And we've got to put a cap rate on uh, that's at least in excess of their, uh, their, their cost of debt. So you had basically a step up in all REITs, the valuations needed to compress. The second difficult thing has just been, and this is where um, the opportunities actually started to arise, is the market starts painting everything with the same brush. Uh, and there's been a big sort of a conversation, and it's very, uh, and rightfully so, around commercial real estate and mostly focused in office. And if you think about Canada right now, I think we're sitting at about a 17% uh, vacancy rate um, in office. And if you sort of historically, once you get pretty much north of 10, you go from sort of a landlord's markets to a tenant's market. And when you're way past 10, in some cases, in some areas in the US, you're you know, 20 to 30, that puts a lot of pressure on um, sort of how REITs are valued, how they're you know, pricing. And I think the debt markets, I was talking to Jeff Moore, and the debt markets are pricing you know, commercial real estate at like the 100th percentile of you know, debt spreads over the last sort of 10 years, um, mostly around office. So these are companies that are sort of highly levered and they generally fine because demand is stable, but right now in office, demand isn't stable and you're not sure when it's coming back and you know there's walls of debt that come due. So office is generally a place I'm sort of kind of staying away from or shied away from because the fundamentals aren't good. Having said that, you do get a point where um, the market and what I've, having done this for sort of close to 20 years, you end up seeing that like the ETF market um, sometimes will overwhelm just the fundamental investor. And if people say, well, I hate office, but well, I'm just going to go and sell my real estate ETF, that actually takes everything down with it. And it become, there becomes opportunities to go in. Like, there are areas of real estate that are actually fairly strong right now. Industrial, a lot of the industrial companies still have like 50% mark to markets on their book. Meaning like, if you go out and release something in your portfolio, you actually get 50% more. And these will be rolling over the standard like um, lease duration for an industrial portfolio is probably around five years. And so for the next five years, they're just gonna be rolling things 50% higher, 50% higher, you know, like 20% of their book a year. So there's some good, de good demand there. Um, we talked about AI. Well, suddenly data centers, if you're a data center REIT, that becomes sort of interesting um, because there's going to be a huge need for compute power and more and more space. There'll be some CapEx associated with it. Um, but like suddenly uh, the economic slowdown that was going to you know, hurt some of these companies um, may not actually come to fruition because they're going to be jammed with demand for companies needing more compute power um, for AI. Um, I use Canada as an example for uh, multifamily. Um, you know, Canada immigration, oh, it's like four or 500,000 people a year coming into Canada. They're not all going and buying two or $3 million homes. A lot of them are going to be looking for sort of affordable apartments um, that may not be super affordable because we're just, we can't build enough. It costs, who knows what it costs to build one now because uh, labor's went in short supply and the cost of materials has been up a lot and it takes forever to get things permitted. So you may end up having a case where um, some of the, the, the REITs can actually maintain and push uh, sort of pricing on rents for the foreseeable future. So there's a lot of areas in the real estate market that are actually fine and the fundamentals are pretty good. I think just a lot of things have been tainted with the same brush because we are going to have a tough time and there are going to be defaults and you've seen it already in the, uh, in the, the office side of things. 
So what is the rest of the year outlook on, on dividend income for oil companies? So the energy side of things. For oil companies, uh, it hasn't been an area, once again, it's like the free cash flow yields, the value of these things looks really good at current sort of strip prices. That's just like the, sort of the forward curve of oil. The, you know, the free cash flow yields are well into the teens. The dividends are good. Everything's fine there. The one thing I'd say about that is in an economic slowdown, you usually have resources um, that can struggle a little bit, even if the valuation is, is pretty good. So the companies will continue to buy back a huge amount of stock. Um, the dividends are totally safe. It's a fine place to be, but just hasn't been, I think I've mentioned on previous webcasts, it's just not a place I've been really sort of, uh, at least on the EMP side, uh, exploration and production, um, sort of adding to when you've got um, a little bit of a sort of an economic, overall economic slowdown um, that probably, it's been the most forecast economic slowdown uh, ever, but at some point rates will slow down the economy a little bit. Uh, and so for oil producers, the val I think the value's there, but uh, I, you know, once again, it's a little more late, uh, a little more uh, sort of, it's a little bit late in the cycle for me to want to sort of uh, jump in uh, at, at this unless the valuations get like uh, sort of a little more, um, even, even get a little bit cheaper to the downside. You know, a year ago, I don't know, maybe even eight months ago, there, there wasn't a huge discussion on the fixed income because the income part of that discussion yep, wasn't yeah. really there. So now, ultimately, that we, that we do seem to talk more about that, how do you sort of make the case for a dividend strategy versus, you know, yep. taking a look at bonds? Bonds have now come back to a point where, like, I, I think you could be, it, it falls into a bucket again. Like you can actually think about a 60-40 again. You can think about a balanced fund. You can think about going out and buying a good tactical bond fund. You know, Jeff Moore runs a bunch of really good product for us. Um, but I think you can go and say, hey, listen, I can get a, you know, I can get a 5% yield again. And there is a possibility that if things slow down, I could make some money on the, up, the upside. And, you know, if they're okay, I'm at least clipping a reasonable yield again. From the standpoint of dividends, so I, I think that's like a reasonable strategy again. Um, but I think what that does for you, if you go out and get a 5% yield, it stays and say, okay, I'm buying a 10% uh, or a 10-year bond, um, a corporate bond at you know, five, five and a half or something like that. That's sort of what you get over the sort of the life and the duration of, of the bond. It's sort of 5%, 5%. So, 5%. so you're kind of, you're, you're clipping inflation, but not much more. Uh, and, and that's fine for a bucket in your portfolio where I think about sort of a dividend comes in and I always use sort of like a utility as an example, as long as you buy them at reasonable levels, um, you can clip a 4% uh, yield, but you can also clip 7% growth or something on a good utility that's operating well, say five to 7%. If you think about that over the course of 10 years, Either the stock price has not gone up and you're going to be clipping an 8% yield as opposed to a 5% yield um, at the end for the bond. But if the market is sort of reasonable and the utility is still good, that 8% still is 4% and you've basically clipped 100% earnings growth. So your stock over a period of 10 years should be close to a double um, for you if they can actually get that 7%. And that's compounding. That's sort of the power of compounding. Uh, and along the way, you get the 4%. So the way I always like to say, if I can buy it at a reasonable multiple, and the multiple doesn't change over a long period of time, um, I can get a 4% yield and then 7% growth. And then every year that 4% just goes up by 
that hopefully grows with earnings and that 4% after the, in the next year is 7% higher. Then that yield is 7% higher and 7% higher. And that should over time push the stock up. And you think about your total return is hopefully being the 4% plus either somewhere between five to 7%, which is either nine to 11%. And over time, that's a lot better than just clipping a five five and a half percent yield. Okay, so interesting, because it is such a different world than it was, as you said, sort of sort of a year ago. Now, that said, kind of back to one of the initial points is, so wherever inflation settles, we, we are kind of still dealing with this right now. So looking forward, ultimately, over mm-hmm. the next year, over the next two years, what ultimately do we need on the dividend front to fight the inflation that is still sticking around? Well, I think it's it's just the, the back to the combination of income and, and, and growth. So what we need are, you know, the things I'm trying to find right now in the fund. Um, one, I do think growth is probably going to slow down a little bit. The economy will slow. And I don't think anyone should not... Uh, should not expect that because interest rates, hard for interest rates to go to zero to four to five um, and that not happen. Having said that, I think we've also become very accustomed, uh, unfortunately, to like what the last couple of recessions look like. Um, they don't have to be global pandemics and they don't have to be global financial crisis. You can have a normal slowdown where you get a recession is defined as like two quarters of consecutive negative GDP growth. That can totally happen and it can be a normal recession and the world doesn't get that bad um, and we're actually in a recession. Um, so my idea is one, Find companies, go and, as long as they're reasonably priced, go and find companies where you're pretty certain what the earnings are and that can com- compound over time so you don't take big earnings risk. Uh, or two, go and find companies that are kind of like pricing a recession that's already happened. And there's a lot of companies out there where um, it's like, okay, things are going to slow down. The market likes to price things ahead of time. Okay, well, you're already, you're already priced like it. So if they're already priced like it, let's go in and there are a number of industrials that fall into that. Uh, category because industrials are going to suffer in a recession. But okay, well, if you've, if our analysts can determine, listen, um, most of the downside is already in. Maybe there's another, it could be another 10% if we really go into a recession. But over the next two years, I think there's 50% upside to this. I will take down 10 and up 50 as my you know, downside upside sort of projections sort of all day long because you know at some point they're going to go back to a reasonable multiple with reasonable earnings. The other one is just like there's a lot of companies where maybe you did hit peak in the last couple of years, but there's also a lot of companies that were either suffering from supply chain issues, couldn't like couldn't get the stuff, couldn't act, the demand was there, but the production actually wasn't. So go and find some companies where things actually maybe get better over the next couple of years or think about companies that were impacted a lot by inflation, um, but are finally getting price, prices that sort of they can push through uh, and earnings were actually a little depressed and get better. So I'm looking for companies um, along the sort of line of you know Mark Schmell, um, things that can actually get better as opposed to things that you know were at peak and you know will actually really have a slowdown if the economy slows. Fascinating, John Newman. Thank you very very much for bringing us up to date on the funds that you manage and, and taking us through sort of where the dividend strategy belongs, perhaps in in all of our different toolkits. All the best. My pleasure, Pamela. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. 
Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.